0: Hello, I'm Hugh Linehan and you're very welcome to this, the latest edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. In February, a few weeks after the inauguration of Donald Trump as the 45th President of the United States, Yale historian Timothy Snyder published a slim volume of just 128 pages called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Based on his own understanding of how anti-democratic and anti-enlightenment forces can rise suddenly to power, the book offers 20 ways to resist that process. Professor Snyder is one of the leading thinkers on the history, causes and meaning of murderous totalitarianism. His 2010 book, Bloodlands, explored how 14 million people were killed under Stalinism and Nazism in Eastern Europe between 1933 and 1945. In his 2015 work, Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning, he warned of the risks of misunderstanding and forgetting the true circumstances which led to the annihilation of millions of Jews. Snyder was in Dublin recently for a talk at UCD's Centre for War Studies in the School of History. He sat down with me beforehand to discuss how he came to write on tyranny, the lessons which we can learn from what happened in the 1930s and 1940s, the links between contemporary political developments in Russia and Ukraine and what's happening right now in the United States, and how best to counter the current political assault on truth and factuality. I was just thinking about the title of of your most recent large work, you know, Black earth, the Holocaust is History and Warning, and thinking about that word warning and in the months that followed the publication of that book, the process began, which led to the publication of on tyranny. Could you tell me about how, what that experience was and what led you to publish on tyranny
1: well I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the two books and then I'll talk about I'll talk about me. So the odd thing is that when I was writing Black Earth, I was hastening to finish. This interpretive history of the Holocaust, because I had this idea that if we understood the past, we would be able to head off certain things that were coming. My argument in Black Earth had to do with ideology, which pretty much everyone agrees with, with ecology, which is a fairly new argument, and with state destruction, which was an entirely new argument. And I had this notion that if we if we didn't just commemorate the Holocaust, but treat it as an event that had causes, then we would look at the present and see different things. So the the book was already very edgy in 2015 when when it was published. And then as it was published, um, we were facing the war in Syria and there were refugees and the changes in politics in the European Union um, and in the, at the conclusion of the book. I, I worried about a future United States where we might have leadership which ignored climate change and ignored science. I worried about a future in which Russia tried to destroy the European Union. Um, I, I, I worried about a future in which people would take states less less seriously. And the funny thing is that before anybody had a chance to read that book, the future that future was already hitting us. So um, I wrote On Tyranny because I'm a historian of the Holocaust and of Soviet terror and of other kinds of, of dark politics. And I'd spent, you know, 20 years becoming that person, and I my I, I, I mentally live in that world, so the it and the, you know, can it happen here? I, I assume it can, and I was taught by the people to whom it happened, so I know it happens to people like us, and then my students in Eastern Europe are experiencing new kinds of authoritarianism. So I, you know. even before it came to the U.S., I took it for granted that these things, this things, things were happening. So I wrote on tyranny to try to condense everything I thought I knew about history in a quick and concise form that Americans could use. The idea being that history doesn't lose you time, history buys you time. Because if, you, if, you, if, his, if history jars you into seeing where you are, then there's some chance that you can act what before it's too late. So that's that's why I wrote On Tyranny. That's where On Tyranny came from.
0: I, I read a quote from you in the New York Times, I think at the point of the publication of Black Earth, uh, and you said, it's easier for historians to say it's not our job to write the future. Uh, and then you say, yes, right, but then whose job is it? Do you think that's what most how most historians think about their role, that it's part of their job to write the future?
1: Uh, I, I mean, no, but I also don't care right i mean i care so uh, i do care about being a good historian and and following scholarly modes and um you know and that's why i learned all these languages and why i spent all this time in archives and why i take the arguments of my colleagues so seriously when i write history books on the other hand i also think that people can have more than one vocation in life right like um, being a husband and being a father are not the same thing but they're also not entirely unrelated being a historian and trying to make sense of the present, um, uh, out, seeing historical patterns—they're not the same thing. You know, I understand colleagues who say I want to do one but not the other. I understand that because they're not the same thing. But there is a relationship between them, and then there is, of course, this gaping hole, right? That um, who predicted 2016? I mean, in my world, it was it was it was the Ukrainian protesters and um, and the 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 Midwest, from the Midwestern, from the American Midwest, left wingers, um, the African Americans. It was the people who were on the periphery somehow looking in who saw things and said, yes, Trump is going to win. It wasn't the establishment. It wasn't the statistics. It wasn't, it wasn't the political scientists. And I also, I have this, I have this overwhelming sense that um we had spent a generation, we in the West, um I mean I realize there were shocks like two thousand and eight here, but um that we in the West had spent a generation convincing ourselves and what's worse the generation to come that nothing could really change, right? That history was in some the history was over. Um and I think it's exactly the opposite. You know, I think the more that we have from history, the better the better we are prepared and that the, the, the possibilities for what can happen are much broader than what that we usually think. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I I agree that it's not what historians normally do, but I think with, without history, we're sunk.
0: And you were, I think it's fair to say, given what you just said, uniquely placed because of your area of expertise and where, where you've spent so much of your working life to... Uh, to explain and to address this phenomenon, because, and I, I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing you at one point in, in the book, you say this is something which started in the east and is coming to the west.
1: Well, there, 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 there are three places that, that that I'm coming from, right, and none of them are entirely to my credit. The, 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 the first is I'm coming from I'm coming from the 1930s and 40s, and how, as a historian of how regimes did change and uh, you know as, as any historian of those periods could say Nazi Germany doesn't happen in the glimmer of an eye and it doesn't happen because Hitler is all-powerful it happens in large measure because of certain kinds of consent that are that are given mm-hmm. likewise um, to go to the far left and say Czechoslovakia 48 any historian can say it's not that The Stalinists immediately had overwhelming power. It's that they had certain tactics, and and then they received certain kinds of consent. So that's one place I'm coming from. Another place I'm coming from is the universal wisdom of the best people who live through these periods. So if there's wisdom in this book, it's not my wisdom. It's the wisdom of Hannah Arendt or Viktor Klemperer or Václav Havel, who I'm trying to extract. Um, I'm trying to take. They they already transformed their experience of these regimes into. Um, into pretty universal ideas of how one, of what one should notice and how one should react. And I'm just trying to pass that on. But then there's also this little business that um, many of the things which happened in, in America in 2016 had already happened in Russia and already happened in Ukraine. And they happened while I was in or while I was paying attention to these countries. And so there are certain things that are, that are not from the 20th century, but from the 21st. Like, for example... The way that media are used, or the creation of political fiction, or the idea that um, there are no facts; therefore, we should all just kind of stay on the couch. Um, those things, the fake, even like the word "fake news," which everybody in America says all the all the time now. It sounds like an English word, but "fake" actually existed in Russian a decade ago in that sense of an invented piece of journalism which poses as journalism. So it's not just the history; it's also that I wa- I was in these places, and I you know, and I'm friendly with the Russian journalists or the Ukrainian oppositionists. And so along with them, I was seeing this stuff as it came to the West.
0: I, I think it's fair to say that the book is primarily addressed at an American audience and an attempt to shake Americans out of their, you know, deep-seated notions of American exceptionalism and it couldn't happen here and our checks and balances and our systems are sufficient to prevent these terrible things which happen everywhere else in the room from happening here. But while reading that, it did occur to me that 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 sense of smugness uh perhaps is more broader than just in uh the united states i mean it's, you'd find it here i think you'd find it in the united kingdom you find it in a lot of countries which didn't have to go through some of the horrors or trauma of occupation by a totalitarian uh government in the in the middle of the 20th century do you, do you think that might be true i i think
1: i think the the world thinks it's true right so i mean it just as a matter of fact What happened with the book is that after I wrote it, it then got translated into 40 languages, which I which I was not thinking about at all. And even in languages into which it wasn't translated in places like Turkey or Iran, um, I started hearing from people who were using it. Right. So it seems like it has it has a much wider range than i was expecting and i think it's because one can extract from the 20th century a lot of really good practical advice if you listen to the right people but on on your point i i agree completely i think in different ways americans and europeans got themselves caught up in this idea that nothing could truly go wrong. We we have our fables about things. And when I tell a European audience about American, you know, self-deception, everybody laughs. And then I change the subject to European self-deception, then everybody has to listen. Mm. And of course in America it's exactly the opposite, right? Mm. I can get people to laugh in 30 seconds by talking about what the Europeans think, but then I get the Americans to see how they've got it wrong. I've got to bear down for 15 minutes. Um and you also you make a really good point in your question, which I want to emphasize in my answer, which is that there's an awful lot of accident in all of this. So um the fact that it was the Germans in the 30s and not the Americans, is that because the Germans were so much worse than we were, or because anti-Semitism was so much more prominent in Germany than the US? Because it wasn't. Right? Um, or looking at the present, uh you know France, you know, France has a certain kind of president, America has other kind of president. Um You know, in Austria, someone from the Green Party won, but he beat the candidate from the Freiheitliche by two or three points. A lot of this stuff is just accident. You know, they're historical forces pushing us all in one direction, and then somebody gets a lucky break this way, and somebody gets a lucky break this way. It's very important for us to remember that, that the lessons from the 30s are about all of us and not just about the Germans, and that now we have to learn from one another because some of us are luckier and some of us are less lucky. If, a, if the weather had been different or some small thing had been different on, you know, November 9th, Hillary Clinton might be president. We'd be talking about how, how it's, what it's like to have two women in charge of the free world, right? It's a very close run thing. Thing. And so we have to not, when, when it goes bad for someone else, we have to, we have to um, try to learn from that and, and show solidarity with them. Because I really do think that we're all in this together. I think this is one process.
0: And I want to, I want to come back to that, you know, the, the TCs or the 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 suggestions which you give to people in, in in on tyranny as to as to perhaps how they should become engaged and how, how they should act. But just to w- one other point in relation to the way we think about the examples of what's happened over the last twenty five years in Central East and Eastern Europe and in Russia. I can recall all going all the way back to the you know, to the Balkan Wars that, you know, conversations in this part of the world were very often were along the lines of, Well, these people don't have a tradition of democracy, they barely saw democracy, they're not you know, they're not acculturated to it, so it's not surprised that they are fighting each other or aren't able to maintain a democratic system, and I I, I still see that kind of uh, I suppose xenophobia in 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 one way in the way that people think about this idea that th- this new form of totalitarianism has co- is coming from what they see as this benighted part of the world. Often, you know, that it couldn't it couldn't affect us because we're more sophisticated, where our democratic values are more rooted.
1: It's a very nice way of putting the question because. Because you don't name any any, any nations, it, it, it corresponds perfectly with my experience, which is that you can go pretty much anywhere in Europe or in the West, and they will have their notion of the benighted nation, right? So right now Americans are pretty benighted in a lot of places, but if things were just a tiny bit different, we wouldn't be so benighted, right? There's a very strong tendency to say, well, of course the Amer-, you know of course the Americans have this because they're crazy about guns and they don't even want health control, they don't even want health care, in fact we do right I mean that the, when something happens like this the differences seem much greater than they actually are and then people immediately fall back to these civilizational explanations which have the effect of making themselves feel better and also have the effect of closing down historical thought so you don't you don't ask well where did this actually come from and might the sources actually be present here so I I, I think that's completely correct and i would extend i'm going to extend the point to russia in particular there's a it's very easy for um, americans and europeans to say or i should change my verb tense for americans to have said that well that's a very different situation Um, they had communism for 69 years Um, whatever happens there is particular to that place but in fact I would venture to say it's closer to the opposite, that a number of things which have happened in Russia, like, for example, the concentration of wealth or um, the concentration of media, are more like our future than anything else. They show where we can go because they show the logical conclusion of certain trends in our societies. So rather than dismissing Russia, or for that matter, Ukraine, it might make more sense to, to look at them and to say, oh, if we don't like that, how exactly could we head it off because there are similar trends in our own country now with America in a sense it's already happened right we let our we let our social inequality get to be comparable to russia's and that's one of the reasons why russian style political propaganda turned out to work
0: and in relation to that, there was something that struck me. Hannah Arendt is a is a figure who crops up a lot in in your writing and and in on tyranny as well. And one of the things that 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 really struck me about the book was that a way in which until I'd read it, I thought about the the sort of political chaos which proved to be a sort of a seeding ground for these kinds of political changes. I thought of it as something very um, postmodern, very rooted in the kind of stage of capitalism we're in now, the way that culture, media and technology works. But there's a quote, I I, I took it out here. Uh, Hannah Arendt said the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction i.e. the reality of experience and the distinction between true and false, i.e. the standards of thought, no longer Exist and that seemed to me to be a very good description of the the world of post truth in which we live now.
1: Yeah, there's so, there's so much that Hannah Arendt had right, and Origins of Totalitarianism really bears rereading i mean people hear the hear the word totalitarianism they think oh that's an that's an era gone by you know that's 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 the red army fighting the wehrmacht but what she has in mind is much more how how minds change right along with along with along with modernity and that word fiction that she uses is a word that i find to be very appropriate we are we're living in an age where first of all leaders are literally appearing across the horizon of fiction Vladimir Putin was chosen in the Kremlin in 1999 by a group of men who were trying to find a successor to Yeltsin. And the way they did it was they had a public opinion poll about which Russian character on television was most popular. And then they tried to find the person in real life who was most like him. Um, And then um, Donald Trump, who in real life was a failed real estate developer, uh, is rescued by Russians who are close to Putin Putin has made this jump from fiction to reality. The Russians rescue him in the sense of giving him lots and lots of money. Um, They help him build buildings. He doesn't actually ever do any work. Uh, And then on television, he plays a character who's a successful real estate developer, which is a fictional role because he's not a successful real real estate developer. And on the basis of that television role, He then becomes president of the United States. So you have one person leaping across this membrane of fiction, helping another person leap across this membrane of fiction. Very postmodern. It's, I mean, but the thing is, she's not writing, I mean, we can debate about whether it's postmodern or not, but I think the most important, the thing to grasp is the fictionality. And then on the other hand, we live not with these, just with these fictional characters who don't acknowledge the difference between true and false, right? I mean, that's a very important thing about both Putin and Trump is that when they lie, they never apologize. A normal person might lie or make a mistake, but there's a recognition that there's truth. And it's that recognition which forces us, even if it's only a social convention, into the apology or into the, you know, into the, into the correction. Um, They never acknowledge that they've made mistakes or lie because they don't believe that there is
0: actually a truth, out there and and they're actually forcing the issue deliberately it seems to me in that they're repeating the lie in order to make clear to their audience that they can repeat the lie for as long as they want
1: yeah yeah um it is not just a habit it's a policy to try to crowd factuality out of the public sphere you you um you 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 lie you lie all the time you call the journalists the liars and then it's in that confusion that you govern. And you govern by way of confusion because if nobody, if people don't believe that there's truth, they think they're cynical, they think they're sophisticated, but in fact they're completely impotent. Because without truth or without facts, we can't cooperate, we can't have civil society, we can't have opposition, we can't have resistance. Without trust, we can't have the rule of law. The rule of law depends on trust. Um, then another, another aspect of this is that the the fictional people they they have the ability to create fictions which um take up space something bigger than lies so for example the idea that barack obama was born in africa more than half the republicans in the united states believe this so it takes up a lot of space donald trump invented that and propagated it that's what he did or um the idea that when russia invaded ukraine the Ukrainian side crucified a three-year-old Russian boy. An unforgettable image, completely fictional, um, which still takes up a lot of space in discussions of that war, and which literally led young Russian men, this is the sadness of it, it led Russian men to volunteer for that war and to go and to go kill and die. So these, these fictional things take up space and they affect outcomes. I mean, for example, in the US election, when I went door to door at the very end, I heard a lot of things Um, which were thought up in Russia, but they weren't that nobody who said them, like for example, that Hillary Clinton is sick, millions, tens of millions of people thought that Hillary Clinton was sick, but they didn't, they, it didn't occur to anyone that they thought this because somebody somewhere else in another country had a bright idea, right? That fiction had entered their life as far as they were concerned. It's, it's true. And even a year later, as I'm talking to people about the election, there's still all this stuff floating around, um, this flotsam and jetsam of these inventions, which um, which make it hard to have a conversation.
0: And uh, we're, we're almost twelve months since the election, where Donald Trump is almost ten months into his apparently never-ending presidency. It feels like it is going to go on forever. Um, I wonder what are people saying to you now. Sometimes, I, you know, I, I sleep uneasily about about. What Trump may do. it's worth noting that his name, his surname, I don't think it ever appears in the in in the book itself. Um, but do people say to you, actually, it's not as bad as you predicted? This is a clown car of an administration. People talk about it about it being a mixture of malevolence and incompetence, with the with the emphasis on the latter. Is is there any? solace to be taken from the kind of the, the chaos of the White House and the fact that for the most part, not for everything, but for the most part many of whatever initiatives it has tried to implement have failed.
1: But there's a lot of, there's a lot in that question and I'm going to answer several parts of it. The first is what do people say? There are a lot of people who think it's much worse than I do. There's a whole there's a whole there's a whole range. So in general, the drift of what people say about on tyranny was you were right to say that something had gone wrong. Very often what I hear from people is, when you first wrote those 20 lessons, I thought you were way over the top, but a a few months in, I realized that you you were onto something. That's probably the most common reaction. Um, And that's what I was after because I knew, because Americans have two reactions when something bad happens. The first is it didn't happen. And the second is it's never happened to anyone else in the history of the world because we're special. so there and therefore we have no idea what to do so i was trying to i was trying to head that off and i think i did a little bit in that direction uh second second part of the question would be what is what is actually happening and i think here we have to be very careful to note all of the things which we've come to take for granted, right? So we we take for granted that there's no ethics office anymore in the White House. We we take for granted that we don't have his tax forms, and we don't, and that he has live business interests around the world, which he's pursuing as President of the United States, which is unconstitutional and and, and obviously disgusting. Uh, we 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 take for granted that. Um, that we, that he keeps trying, although it's true he has mixed success, he keeps trying on the basis of, of race or religion to prevent people from entering the United States. We, we take for granted the Office of Domestic Terrorism has been renamed the Office of Islamic Terrorism, even though three-quarters of the terrorist attacks in the United States are carried out by right-wing American citizens. Um, we take for granted that his family is there, which is just completely in a, inappropriate, um, we take for granted a number of things. So, you know, it's if the test is if people two years ago had thought it was impossible, there are a lot of things that people thought were impossible which have already happened. And then there is even the way that the good version of what's happening would still, in normal times, be very bad. The good version is something like the FBI is keeping watch on the generals and the generals are keeping watch on Trump. That's the good version. Like nobody thinks it's any better than that. But that's not the constitutional checks and balances. The constitutional checks and balances would have the legislature keeping track of Trump, which is not only happening in a very, very minimal way. The, the good things that are happening are that lots of people are turning political who weren't political before. And then the other thing is that there's been a renaissance of investigative journalism, especially by the Washington Post. And thanks to them, we actually have some idea about about what's going on. Okay, third part of the question, is it just a clown car? Here I want to be really I want to be I want to be really careful because the clown car language is what people said about Mussolini about Hitler. So I always want to, you know, I always want to be very humble about dismissing people because they seem like they don't know what they're doing. Certainly the way that he comports himself and the language that he uses you know referring to african-americans as sons of bitches for example that changes the country i mean one of the things we know about uh, precisely from Arendt or from klemperer Arendt talks about vulgarity and totalitarianism is that the way that leaders speak changes people's i won't hesitate to say it souls it changes what people think is right and wrong acceptable unacceptable um, and that that does damage i would say every single day and you feel it and you see it in the swastikas you see It in you see it in in the the way people look at each other and talk to each other. It it hurts. It really does hurt the society. Um, and then the the final thing I would say about this is that I think what's I mean, I don't think that this is just like the 1930s, but I think it is a governing style. And the governing style is something like you know, oligarchical impotence. If you are an oligarch and what you're really all about is just kind of keeping the social pyramid the way that it is, if you're a rich person or if you're Trump, you want to be a rich person and that's how you're governing, you can't actually do things for your electorate, right? Um, Because doing things for your electorate would be to break up, would be to break up the oligarchy that you're in fact trying to set up. So what do you do? Well, you, you, you govern by, it's funny you should say forever, you govern by Constant repetitive crisis. You go, you govern by the repetitive generation of crisis, whether it's North Korea or Iran, or whether it's African Americans, or whether it's blaming Puerto Ricans for the hurricane. You'd, over and over again, you 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 push on our own wounds. You push on the wounds of your own country. You you provoke other countries, and you and you do it regularly because that that regular cycle of emotion is what you have you don't have policy you just you just have that and so i mean what can seem like just random incompetence i mean incompetence doesn't begin to cover it right it's something much more adventurous than incompetence it's i think i think it's actually a new way of doing politics which is which is dangerous but i think which deserves at least some kind of label some kind of category
0: there's Perhaps the most visible example of everything that you've just talked about there, and the way it brought together so many of those strands, was Charlottesville and, uh, and and Trump's reaction to it, and um, and watching that, and then reading again on, in on tyranny that that you wrote about how the founding fathers of the United States were well aware that the threat to the United States didn't the primary threat did not come from without it came from within, and it struck me that you know that what happened in Charlottesville with its harking back to a uh, a, a confederate philosophy, um, with its usage of 20th century fascist symbolism, and then through the connection of, of what Trump was saying, it can kind of raise the question for the United States of um, that there's always been a strain in in, in American history. Which, might, which was waiting to be awoken. Um, and it's, 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 it's not a secret that, for example, that the Nazis looked with some admiration towards some of the policies that were enacted in the Deep South, Jim Crow and, and various things like that, that there was always something there, some, some rough beast looking, looking, looking to shamble towards us. Well, yeah,
1: I mean, it goes, it goes deeper than that. So go, going back to Black Earth and the history of the Holocaust, it's true that Hitler admired American race laws, But his his admiration begins from what he saw as the American frontier empire, that Americans were able, or as he saw it, Europeans, but Americans were able, with the help of slaves, to exterminate local people and establish a massive land empire. That was his basic model for Lebensraum, for what was going to happen in Eastern Europe. As Hitler saw things, it was too late for maritime empires, but the Americans showed how you could create a frontier empire on land, and we were going to do the same thing now that's that's the history of national socialism as it's never taught in the united states we preferred to talk about what hitler said about us after we went to war and there's plenty of that but his his fundamental idea in the first book and especially in his second book is that the americans show how you can handle modernity by having by having a big a big land empire um, and that but and of course he gets things wrong and you can point those things out but of course but nevertheless there is the basic point that the way the United States was built involved slavery and involved the extermination of local peoples. And we are not the best in the world at confronting those things. We've done an imperfect job with both. Um, And with the African-Americans, it's very much in flux. What Mr. Trump has done is he has, he's activated or he's referred to race in ways which would have been previously unacceptable, and thereby given comfort to the still relatively small group of of active white supremacists um, in in the country. Um, what I fear he's also done is that more broadly, um, he's created a situation in which discussions about race, provoked by his um, his verbal atrocities, substitute for um, discussions about policy. Where he, he's he's trying to he's trying to divide his own country the way that an imperial ruler would, right? He's trying to get us um, worked up about, worked up about race, get everyone in the defensive position or an offended position so that nothing else can, can, can ever, can ever actually happen. Um, and, but with Charlottesville, there's at least one more thing going on here, which is that I don't think, I don't, I just, it, it, this is maybe obvious, but Mr. Trump really does not care about the ethics of the united states he just does the other side of american history right the constitutional pot side the rule of the rule of law side um the, the 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 tent the bill of rights side um the 14th 15th and 16th amendment side the part where the united states is a project to move towards the liberation of people right that part which is also real he just doesn't care about that part it just doesn't it doesn't resonate with him at all, you know, that he could look at Charlottesville and that his reaction would be, well, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, right? Like there are good guys among the Nazis too, right? That's just, you can only say that if, 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 if the, if the, you know, enlightened um, liberatory part of the American project means nothing to you. And of course, it does mean nothing to him.
0: A last question, because I know you've got to, you've got to run very soon, but uh, I'm not going to Go through the, the the twenty points in uh, on tyranny. Um, people can read it. It only takes about an hour to read, uh, and I highly recommend that everybody uh, everybody does read it. But uh, there's there's a recurring theme among some of them, which is about living fully. I, I put it my way: living fully in the physical world, talking to people, looking them straight in the eye, reading physical books rather than being having your face stuck in a screen all the time, being engaged. Uh, um, and it, it, it seems to me, I'm not sure if you'd agree that. Many of the trends in modern life mitigate against that. They make doing those things more difficult, not just in terms of the technology that we live with, but people talk in the United States about the big sort so that people are more likely to live with like-minded people than they were uh, a generation ago. And I think that's something which goes beyond the United States. So how much of a challenge is it um, to live up to your to your 20 points in, in this modern world? I,
1: I, I, I think... I, I, I think the question contains its own answer, that awareness of the trends that you're talking about can lead to changes in behavior, sometimes very small, which have tremendous effects. So um, the the choice to march or not, like to put your body with other bodies in places where you haven't been with people you don't know, that's a pretty easy thing to do. Um, it's not that big of a deal to go out on a march. It's a pretty easy thing to do to have the habit of first reading the newspaper and, and then going to the internet that rather than the other way around, you know, thoughtlessly people just go to Facebook or whatever, and then they take whatever's given to them, but you can start with your favorite newspaper and then take whatever article is there to the internet. And if you do that, you're changing the internet for the better, but you're also keeping your mind in good shape. And if you, if you, if you realize the the, um, the, 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 the whole character of the problem, as you just put it, you can also think about um, your own body and what you're going to do. I mean, a lot of the things that are on tyranny are are, are, are forms of political hygiene. Like, don't spend too much time with the screens. Um, spend more time with books. Doesn't seem like political advice, but it actually it actually does certain things to our sense of optimism. It helps us beat back the sense of uh, incessant bad news. It gives us vocabulary for characterizing what's happening to us, so we're not caught in the echo chamber of the day to day. I think you're right that modernity mitigates against that, that's the whole problem. I mean, the whole problem of politics or the whole problem of freedom is always that there are big things out there in the objective world, you know, whether it's feudalism or serfdom or imperialism or whatever it might be. There's always something out there um, which seems like an impersonal force that you have to somehow characterize and then think about how you're going to adjust to. So I think these things are real, but I, I also think our ability to deal with them is, 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 is much is much greater than we think. Timothy Snyder, thanks very much for taking the time to talk. it uh, my pleasure, thank you.
0: On Tyranny is published by Bodley Head. That's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon for today's show. Before we go, I just wanted to mention that this Saturday's Irish Times is marking the anniversary of last year's presidential election with a special edition of the Weekend Review supplement devoted to Trump's America. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. And remember, you can find all our shows on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. So until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.